Yes, hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of the Dribble Podcast. My name is Craig O'Donoghue from the West Australian Newspaper and it's nice to be back talking basketball with you during the NBL off-season. It's been a huge off-season of change for the Perth Wildcats and today I'm joined by one of the men who has been in the middle of that change along with his wife. Scott Morrison resigned last month and he is online from his home on Canada's Prince Edward Island with his wife Suzanne to take us through the reasons behind that departure, deliver some important messages and hopefully provide support for a large portion of the WA community along with people they know overseas. Scott and Suzanne, really appreciate your time. Welcome to the Dribble Podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for having us. Good to see you again. So, Scott, when you resigned, you said there were family reasons that you're working through, and now you're in some sort of position to provide information about what both you and Suzanne have been working through. What are you prepared to share with the public at the moment? Uh, well, I guess when we resigned, we weren't really sure how to, um, how or what we wanted to share. But in the time since, we've realized that sharing is helpful for us, but more importantly, maybe um, helpful for other people uh, potentially. So. Um, what, what I told the team in private is what I'll share with you right now is that basically when we got to Australia last November, we knew our son Max was behind a little bit in his development, but we didn't think too much of it. We thought maybe just, you know, the pandemic was a, a leading cause and he would, he would catch up. And we soon realized it was probably a little bit more than that and started going to see doctors and, uh, and different um, pediatricians and so forth. And they were all great, but they all agreed that most likely Max was going to be autistic or was autistic, excuse me. So we started the process um, of clearing things like getting his hearing tested and um, he ended up getting an MRI on his, on his brain, which cleared him of any physical um, issues, but made more likely that he had some sort of developmental issue uh, such as autism. So um, my wife, Suzanne, she Right out of the gate, she got him into speech therapy and occupational therapy and found a good daycare. So he actually had a really good year. Um, but as it became more apparent that that was what the issue was, we felt that it was um, best to come back to North America. And um, we were lucky enough to have the option to live in Canada or stay in Australia or return to the U.S. because we have green cards and our kids are both American. So. Um, it gave us some options that some people don't have, and we chose to to exercise that option. Um, and a lot of it had to do with like a crazy amount of research that Suzanne did, especially when we were uh, stuck out of WA and, and Tassie and, and Melbourne and um, talking to people. You like that pronunciation? <laughs> I, le- I learned that when I was in Perth. Um, and talking to different people, and she, she deserves the credit for everything that we learned so far. Um, it was basically a full-time job for her to research this unknown thing that we had never really, you know, knew about or dealt with or anything like that. So uh, the more we learned, the more we talked, uh, the final, we, 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 we drew it out as long as we could, um, but we just didn't feel right going back. And that was why we made the decision that we did. So Suzanne, you're a Fenningham trooper because you moved to the other side of the world with a two-year-old and a two-month-old, and then had your husband st- stuck in a different state due to the border closures all the time while you're trying to work out driving on the wrong side of the road and where you were actually in Perth at the time and you know, how, how to get around. And you're looking after two kids, one of whom is having challenges. Can you, can you tell us what symptoms did you notice that actually raised your concerns about Max? Yeah, I think it all started, to be honest, last summer. Um, 
And it was tricky because it was kind of like the perfect storm of events because we were in Boston. We came up to Canada to be with family. We had to go back to Boston so I could give birth to Shay because our healthcare was still in the US at the time. We accepted this job. There was just a lot of situational factors at play. Um, And we noticed it wasn't like overnight, but we kind of started to notice he stopped using skills he'd previously acquired. Um, We knew his speech was delayed, but he would like gain a word and then he wouldn't use it again. So we kind of saw a bit of a shift in him. Um, But again, we just thought it was a situational thing. As Scott mentioned, we thought COVID and the pandemic played a big role because we were in lockdown since he was five months old. He never went to daycare. He never had play dates or anything. And then honestly, it wasn't until we got to Perth, like we were really naive and thought, oh, we're just going to get him into speech therapy. It's not going to hurt. Even if we don't think he needs it, it's not going to be a bad thing for him. And uh, I, Scott and the team was still in Tassie when we went to the first appointment. And it was just like a huge, it just kind of felt like a multiple punches to the gut, to be honest, because I took him in there kind of happy-go-lucky. And I'm, I had Shay in my arms, like she's nine weeks old. And this in the speech therapist is just like, he's not doing this. He's not doing that. He's not responding to his name. All of these things that we weren't necessarily seeing at home. Um, but with this, you know, stranger in a clinic setting, he just wasn't really delivering. So that was kind of the huge moment where it was like, okay, this is, this is something entirely different. So you mentioned the brain MRI earlier. Scott, you went away with the team on December 27, expecting to be back in Perth on February 5 when the border reopened. And then famously at 7.30pm on January 20, Premier Mark McGowan made this announcement. Allowing hundreds or thousands of Omicron infected people to fly straight into Perth from February 5 with no testing, no quarantine and no public health measures would cause a flood of COVID across our state. So instead of the border opening to the rest of the country on February 5, that was an indefinite suspension of the border for an extended period. It eventually opened up on March 3. That's a long time to be away, December 27 to March 3. And I'd imagine the brain MRI happened during that time. Is that correct? Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, um, it was supposed to be February 4. So we, we were kind of hoping we might get home beforehand, uh, worst case, right right after it. And then the uh, yeah, the news came that we wouldn't be. So that was, I wasn't there. I mean, Suzanne can speak to it. I'm sure it was a very tough day. It was actually, I guess, good news in a certain respect because he didn't have a brain tumor or something awful like that. Um, But at the same time, it confirmed that there was probably something more on the line of the, the spectrum that we were also hoping wouldn't be the case. It sounds terrifying to be putting a two-year-old into an MRI for their brain, and you two weren't together. Um, Suzanne, I'd imagine that was the most horrifying moment you could have imagined, given that you two were apart. Uh, how difficult was that day? Oh, I'll never forget it. Um, yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. We were at uh, uh, Perth Children's Hospital for it. Thank God we had the most incredible babysitter, Georgia, and... Because Shay, Shay was still breastfeeding and she wouldn't take a bottle. So we had no choice. Like she was coming too. <laughs> so off we went. I think it was like five in the morning. Shay, myself, Max and Georgia, off we went. And uh, the people at Perth Children's were incredible because they had that Ronald McDonald room. So I was getting texts with like Shay with a volunteer, like 
some old ladies like doting on Shay and bopping her around the room. Um, but it was really petrifying. It was a lot of kind of waiting around and just kind of waiting his turn. But then that moment where, like, you know, he's getting put under and you're holding your son while he's getting put under and you're passing him off to doctors. It was really emotional um, in a weird way too. Like it was really humbling because I just remember thinking like, you know, you're in a, I'll get emotional now. You're, you're in a room with a bunch of parents that are going through something really scary and you know that it's varying degrees of scary. And, you know, you saw some kids there that were dealing with stuff that is a nightmare for a lot of parents. Right. And I'll never forget all of us parents were kind of in the same like cafeteria, just waiting for their, to get the call that if their kid was out of um, whatever procedure they were in. And I'll just never forget that moment. Cause I just remember Scott and I said, like, if, if he can come out of this and it's, it's not something like threatening or something really, really, really scary, like, we can handle it. So just getting that call that he was out, we went up and he popped up and chugged a couple juice boxes. And I was like, all right, <laughs> once we got the, we got out of there and we knew that he was fine and there was nothing in his brain like that. It was just like, I think it just made everything a little bit more easier to handle, I guess is the way I'm trying to say it. And how did you handle it, Scott? Because you were absolutely helpless at that point. Yeah, I mean, honestly, just all I could do really was pray and, and be there for Suzanne if she needed me to, to call me. Um, I know a lot of partners hated us that stretch. Um, and those of us with kids, I know I know, I shared the car with, with Nixie every day. And uh, he has three kids at home, too, at the time. And uh, we, were, we would just always wake up praying that uh, people at home slept well because that was the start of start of the day. If, if they had a bad night, it was going to be a bad day for us too. Um, so that day was tough, but we were, you know, was, like I said, all I could do was really pray and owe everything to Suzanne and, and Georgia for getting, getting the kids through it. How guilty did you feel, Scott? Because I was at the airport for the team's return to Perth in March and it was highly emotional for everyone, uh, players, coaches, as they, they all got back. But I saw you walk through the gates and the hug that you two shared looked like it was a thank goodness you're home hug from Suzanne while yours looked like it was a oh, I am so sorry I left one. And for anyone listening overseas in Canada or in the, in the US where um, Scott and Suzanne have friends as well, Western Australia's approach to COVID was to close our border to the rest of the country for extended periods. So at times there was an allowance to return and quarantine for two weeks. But at this point when Scott was away, it was a hard border and he couldn't come back under any circumstances. But when the team left in December, nobody knew that was going to be the case. So Scott, how challenging it was it to be you thinking that you could have had any job in any country, you'd chosen to come to Perth and now this was your life? Yeah, I mean, I feel guilty is one of the feelings that just happens a lot when you're a coach. Because um, even on a regular season, you're away a lot more than most people. Um, so this was like that on steroids uh, times two. But I was just happy that the kids are so hard to travel with. Otherwise, Suzanne probably would have left um, in mid-January. But the, the devil you know is is – not as bad as the devil you don't know sometimes. So I'm sure she was scared to get on the plane with, with the two of them by themselves. Um, so when I got, when I landed, I, I felt, yeah, I felt guilty. I was just happy it was over. And uh, I knew I was going to get put to work at home, but I was quite happy to, to do so because um, it wasn't something we anticipated. Like you said, we, one of the reasons we took the job is because we expected that I'd be home a lot more than 
you know, the G League or the NBA or the NCAA or any other place that we could have coached. So it was a it was an attraction initially and then ended up being uh, the exact opposite. But on the bright side, I guess we were able to be home for the last three and a half months of the of our run. So that was a nice time as well. So there were those issues, and then there were the financial implications because you're not Australian citizens, which means you didn't qualify for Medicare. I'd imagine it's cost you an arm and a leg to go through all of this and try to pay for everything without being eligible for any of the subsidies and discounts that Australians can get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was something we didn't bargain for either. I mean, we didn't even know what Max would need when we got there. We didn't know all this was going to happen, but um, we were kind of rook, but we'd never lived outside of North America before. And um, one, there's lots of negatives about the NBA, but the one, one of the positives is the health plans are always top notch. And um, we were spoiled in that regard in Boston because Boston's also the kind of the hub of healthcare in the U.S. So you can't ask for a better place to live in terms of healthcare. So the healthcare, I think, in Australia is great. We just couldn't access all of it. Um, the programs and stuff that we could access was a lot pricier. But we wouldn't. We're not going to spare any expense for our kids. But it definitely made things. A little bit harder overall. Um, again, something that we weren't, wouldn't, didn't bargain for when we went in, but that wasn't any real factor in us leaving per se. It was more so just making sure that we didn't miss anything that Max might need. I'll add to that too. Like a big challenge was after I spoke to Max's old pediatrician in Boston, and we were learning just like what the the landscape was back in in America, and it was just. Um, like, it was just so easy. She was like, oh, yeah, like, once you're diagnosed, you get all these therapies and it's all covered. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you don't have to, like, go through all these hoops and all these things. And it just seemed really, really clear cut. And uh, I connected with a lot of other parents in Perth um, who have children on the spectrum. And it was just wild, like, the amount of money that people were spending. Like, there was one family that they were selling their house to pay for therapy. Um, there was other families that wanted to move to different locations to be able to access therapy or even just be able to afford it. There was some, I think one figure was, I think they spent $50,000 in six months. And I think NDIS only got, gave like $10,000 back. So I wanted to shed light that um, it was extra hard for us, just not getting that Medicare, not getting, not qualifying for resources, but um it's it's just it's pricey. The therapy is really, really, really pricey, even for Australian citizens as well. And then there's the timelines and waiting periods for people to get even into the system. Uh, it takes about twelve months in WA to to get assessed. You got to go through psychologists and uh, pediatricians and referrals. Um, and there's a little bit of time after you even have your testing to get a diagnosis for autism. You've been in Canada for a month and you've already had Max assessed and diagnosed. So tell me how you've been able to get everything done so quickly after arriving back in your home country. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I said to start by saying, I don't think we're, we don't want to imply or people to think that we are saying the quality isn't as good. It's just less of it, um, if that's fair to say. Like the, the people that we worked with in, in Perth for Max were awesome. Yeah, they're um, incredible. And we can't thank them enough, but it's just hard. Like you said, there's wait times and everything else. And the, the diagnosis in this for this type of thing is crucial because once you get the diagnosis, then you, at least back here in North America, then you qualify for more things. Um, so when we, as soon as we got back here, before we even decided to to resign from the team, our goal was to try and get them diagnosed in Canada. So if we went back to Perth, we could get the ball rolling right away. 
and we made a bunch of calls. It's not great in Canada either. It's not as good yeah. as the U.S. Um, in Canada, but you know, one call led to another, and ironically, the day, the morning after um, we did the press conference to say I was going to resign, I was feeling pretty down about it, and um, we got a call. I got a call the next morning from one of the places I had been calling, and to say they had an opening for Max in mid-July, and um, I took that as a, a sign that we did the right thing, to be honest with you, uh, because it just gave me a little bit of hope that things are going to be a little bit easier. They're going to get better. And it was kind of the break that we needed because now wherever we end up in the fall or in the spring for, for Australia, um, we know we have that piece of paper and he can get access to whatever the best programs are, wherever we end up. So that was a, a big thing. And um, had we gone back to Perth, there was no guarantee we would have gotten that before mid-season even. Kind of to Scott's point, like um, I think we got really, really lucky in a lot of areas. Um, and even in Perth, like it's, you need a developmental pediatrician. You also need the psychologist and you also need the speech pathologist to all sign off on a diagnosis. And the developmental pediatrician is a 12 month wait on average. Um, and we just got really, really lucky that we had family friends who had like a personal connection to one in Perth. And then I will add that I think because of all the legwork we did in Perth and because we had such an incredible developmental pediatrician and incredible OTs in speech, like they all provided really great in-depth reports and letters that we gave to this um, clinic that we went to. And it honestly kind of made her job really easy because it's like she had everything that she needed to make it. So um, it's tough because even like we got on a wait list too and we were kind of just trying to get everything in motion. So like, for instance, we tried to get on a wait list in um in boston as scott mentioned it's kind of a hub for these for medical um but even there i think it was like a, a two to three month wait list as well so the wait lists do exist and i think we did get really 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 lucky but the work that we did in perth and the people we worked with made this made kind of made it all happen at the end of the day now scott you were really keen to mention one of the groups that either helped you in perth or you feel is important in perth for autism and that is a group called faces so tell us a bit about faces well, Suzanne actually came across it in her research, and I don't know a whole lot about, about it, but um, I think the gist of it is a couple of um, autism mothers, mothers of kids with autism, were experiencing the same stuff that we were. It's hard to get things done. It was uh, resources were few and far between, um, and they realized there was a need for, for more help, and uh, um, they're trying to raise money for, I think, basically a center for autistic kids that they can go to and get everything they need something that doesn't exist there at the time, uh, currently. So when we were talking about this, one of the things we've learned, like I said, is the more kind of the more people you tell, the more opportunities there are for people to help you or relate to you. And um, when you're going through something like this, it's nice to be able to have someone to talk to that's going through something similar. So not that someone back in Perth is going to be able to help us, but maybe if someone listens to this, that isn't telling their own story or, um, doesn't realize the challenges that parents of, of kids like Max face in, in Perth, maybe they'd be willing to help a group like Faces to reach their goal. And if we can help in any way, that's kind of the reason that we wanted to talk to you today because um, maybe someone will hear it and say, hey, I can, I can, I know someone that would donate to that or I know someone that would be uh, interested in getting involved with that and helping. And uh, you know, maybe the next person that comes through that discovers their kids autistic, they'll have somewhere they can go right off the bat, um, as opposed to us who 
kind of worked down to the last hour to try and figure something out. And without any guarantees, we had to had to leave. Um, so we'll be we'll be contributing to faces and encourage anyone that's listening to look it up and consider doing the same because it would help a lot of people. Now, if you'd like to know more about Faces or you feel this is part of your life which you need to get involved with it, um, they have an open day coming up on Monday, August 15 from 10am to 1pm. That's at number 2 Sandgate Street in South Perth. And you will hear from Dr. Cindy Smith, Dr. Emily Pierce, and Jasmine Fife. Uh, you can also go onto their website, which is faceswa.com, or their Facebook page, which is Autism School for Perth. Uh, if you want to help financially, one of the best opportunities is through Telethon. And wouldn't it be great to see the WA community top the extraordinary $48 million pledged last year when the event is held in October? Uh, the Perth Wildcats have been a big supporter of Telethon over the years, and I'm sure you will see more of your favourite players in the phone rooms in October, so give when you can for that. Uh, now, the big question for everyone, I suppose, now is how is Max? Tell us a bit about how he's going. Well, right now, it's been a struggle. We, the whole family just went through COVID. Um, and then, as Scott mentioned, we just got him diagnosed and we had to go over to another province for that. And he got sick again. We've been in the emergency room. <laughs> um but Max is incredible. He is the most special little boy. He's so gifted. He is going to be like, he's going to make a big difference in this world. And um, he's just happy. Like not too many kids can, you know, travel across the world before the age of three twice. And he's been to Singapore and Qatar and he just adapts seamlessly. As soon as we got here, we were kind of like, is he going to remember our house here like what's he gonna be like with our grandparents and he didn't miss a beat he's he's spoiled rotten they have a big jungle gym for him outside and he's just like climbing up it like a monkey and goes down the slide 80 times a day and (laughs) he's just he's incredible he's doing really 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 good scott it was an incredibly tight nbl season and there were way too many games that ended like this he's at five no shot clock cotton for the win So that's Bryce Cotton winning a game in overtime against New Zealand in Tasmania. That I think that sentence sums up COVID in general. But um, once you returned, I think most people saw that you looked a hell of a lot more stressed as the season progressed. And I think we could all sense something was happening in your life outside of basketball. Now that we know you had this going on in the, in the background, how much of an impact did it have on you mentally to try to be dealing with all of this and try to help the team when you're having more on your plate than you could ever have really imagined? Yeah, well, like I said to a few of my friends, the, my first year of being an adult was a tough one. Um, you know, this is kind of the first real stuff I had to deal with in my life, so I've been pretty blessed that way. The only pressure I've ever felt has been on the court, and um, that's not really pressure when it comes to to life. Um, I think, uh, you know, they, they always said that the, the job would be a high-pressure one, but the pressure I was facing was more internally, like, bringing the family over there, you know, saying that was going to be a good thing for our family and then being separated, like you said, um, then having to deal with the stuff that Max went through. I think that I learned what real pressure was. Um, and it wasn't trying to be Adelaide, even though I wanted to be Adelaide and everyone else. And I still put pressure on myself as a coach because that's what you do when you want to be uh, the best you can be at a high level. But the real pressure was trying to make sure that we made the right choices for for max and and shay um and i guess 
the pressure of coaching was kind of compounded because I wanted to make sure we I did a good job or best I could, given that I put everyone through the stuff, or at least I felt like I did. So uh, it was a tough year. Um, but as a coach, I learned a lot. And as a parent, you know, I like to think maybe we wouldn't have learned all this if we didn't go because uh, maybe we would have kept Max sheltered more because of COVID. That's what we did the first year and a half of his life. And getting to Perth, we were able to get him out and mix with other kids. And that's when you start noticing things. And like Suzanne said, we got lucky to get a good um, pediatrician. And um, I like to think that taking the job was helpful to Max in the long run too, even though we didn't stick it out. But um, we learned a lot because of it. Do you know what Max's life looks like from here in terms of development areas he has to focus on? Or is he still too young for you to have that awareness yet? Um, it's funny, like we, we just met with that psychologist and, and I kind of asked her like, you know, like in the report that you provide is because way back when they provide levels and things like that. And, and she said that now it's more, you know, it's a spectrum, but it's also a spectrum on a rainbow. And that's the one thing that we've learned. And I think that's why we were kind of in denial about autism for a while, because he didn't really fit that Google doctor stereotypical profile. Um, so that's kind of where I think in a weird way, Perth was incredible because we were kind of left in the dark. It really forced us as parents, like we really had to kind of, he can't speak. So we, he can't tell us how he's seeing things and perceiving things. So it was like, we really had our eyes wide open, um, just trying to figure out, you know, how he's reacting to things. Like what, how is he taking things in? Like take him to a Wildcats game. Like how is he doing with the sensory? And it was funny. We had a call um not that long ago with a, a center I guess a day school it's basically like instead of sending him to school he'll go to more of like a, a clinic type of center like they'll have behavioral therapy speech therapy OT all in one place anyways it was funny they were like tell me about Max and I gave her my whole spiel and she had to do a double take on her sheet and she goes he's not even three yet and I'm like no and she goes I can't believe you know all of this about him um, and I just said it, honestly, it was just working with the occupational therapist, um, in Perth and just kind of really trying to force us to really figure him out. So going forward, I think it's taking all that knowledge that we have and it's going to change and it's going to, it's not every day, it's going to look the exact same, but, um, I think right now the biggest goal for him is working on those foundational skills and working on communication. Um, like I said, he has some words, but not, um, not where we want him to be. So that's kind of the goal right now is to really work on that. We've covered so many things here. Is there any other message that you think you'd really like to let the public know about? Well, I'll, I'll let Suzanne kind of finish off in the in the autism world uh, and, and talking about that a little bit more. But I just wanted to make sure that we made it quite clear how incredible the ownership group was to not just our family, but all the families this season, um, starting with when we were sent away for the two and a half months. Um, they went to great lengths to, you know, try and make sure there was events for the families. There was meals provided, there was cleaning provided, things like that, just to make it a little bit easier, um, even though the circumstances were, were out of their control. And then when it came to our situation, once we kind of uh, shared with them what we were going through with Max, they jumped right on it. Um, Hachi was incredible. Just, reaching out to any source that he or, or, or friend or contact that he had um, led us to a lot of great 
people and, and um, opportunities for Max there. Um, they offered to help cover the cost of the therapies that we don't get covered for not being residents and just basically anything possible in their realm and their power to do. They, they did it um, in an effort to make us feel comfortable to come back, even if it was just for one season. So I can't thank them enough. Um, they're great people to work for. And uh, if I coach for another 25, 30 years, um, we'll probably never live in a place as nice as Perth, but we'll probably also never work for a group uh, of people that are, honest, genuine humans in, in a business that is built on um, shady dudes, if you know, for lack of a better way to put it. So uh, the the new coach, JR, he's, he's, he's walking into a great situation there and uh, and I'll be rooting for them because of how they treated us. It was an unbelievable um, show of support. So I can't thank them enough. I'll echo what Scott said. I, um, I remember the day where I said, okay, Scott, we need to go to the owners and I didn't really have high expectations or any expectations, to be honest. I thought, oh, they're here to make money, but they were just so, so incredibly compassionate. And uh, we had a whole like SWAT team working for a little man, which was just, we're just so grateful. Um, as final comments, kind of, I, I have so much to say on this topic when it comes to autism and this journey that we've been on. Um, I guess what I just want to say is that it can be this really, really scary thing. I think a lot of parents can be, they don't want to hear it or they can be in denial. And I think a lot of the fear comes from the unknown. I think there's a lot of misinformation. I think there's a lot to learn when it comes to neurodiversity. And I think there's a lot to unlearn. And um, I think we just kind of want, we need to make this world better for Max and for other kids on the spectrum or, um, other kids with these invisible disabilities because like there's going to be challenges in front of them every single day and they're going to be challenges that a lot of people aren't going to understand and they're not going to be able to see and we just want to make this world inclusive so that they can do all the things you know they're, they I don't want the house in Max's room to be his safe place I want him to be able to be able to choose to like, I want to go to a game. I want to go to swimming lessons. I want to do all the things. And, and I want to go to the birthday parties and I want those to be safe places for them. And that starts with education and, and awareness. And that's all, you know, we're trying to do. That's why we came forward. As Scott mentioned, it's like, it's a, we got to support each other and we got to spread the word <laughs> for lack of a better term. Now, everyone in Perth who likes sport uh, was aware of the challenging faces of autism and how difficult it can be for parents. Uh, we had West Coast star Tim Kelly asking to be traded home from Geelong so he could be close to the family and have help raising his kids. And we all know Geelong is a hell of a lot closer than Canada. So I think it's extremely clear from this interview that you two really had little other option other than to get home as well. So hopefully Wildcats fans now have a greater appreciation for what you have been going through. And I think we should all recognise Scott's coaching performance because while the club did miss the finals and that famous streak came to an end, he did take that team to 16 and 12 while going through all of this. And I really do think that's quite remarkable. Um, at the time of recording, Twitter is telling us that Scott's going to be back coaching in the NBA G League shortly, but I'm, 
I won't question him about that because he gave me a couple of no comments throughout the year, so I'm sure he'll say no comment to me right again here now. But um, I think you two are a wonderful couple and put up with way more than most people would have just to do their job. And I think we should also say, Scott, congratulations on the work you did in helping to develop Luke Travers into an NBA draftee. Is there anything you'd like to say about Luke before we wrap up? Yeah, sure. I don't want to take any credit for him um, uh, other than maybe getting him a few extra minutes here or there. But uh, I think the credit goes to him and uh, and guys like Trig, Luke Brennan, um, who worked with him a long time. And uh, it was really cool to see him out there at Summer League. Um, I was talking to Jesse Wagstaff earlier today, actually, and he was kind of joking that, uh, you know, Trig, Trig was in Vegas watching LT play and Jesse's like, well, he's seen him play four years. Why do you have to go all the way to Vegas to see him play? But um, anytime someone like that that you've you've worked with for a long time or even a short time in my case, um, it, it fills you with a little bit of pride um, and you're really genuinely happy for him because he's a great kid. So I, I, the only thing I can really say is um, when I was in the G League the first time, um, the Cavaliers GM, Mike Gansey, was, was running their G League team. So I got to know him a little bit and, and talking to him last week they were really happy with lt i know he's going back to perth so he's still got a lot of fighting to do to get to where uh, his goals are in the nba but i think that they were really excited about him and um i'm sure there was a lot of teams kicking themselves in the butt for not picking him or giving him a better look because a lot of people you know see him and they're like this guy can't play um but when he gets out there and he he fills the stat sheet up you know he's not getting 30 and 20 but he's getting five 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 and five and that's that's something almost even more unique. So I hope he, I hope he takes the experience that he had and and uh, builds on it. He's going to get some great coaching next year. Uh, hopefully, one more season he can get there full time. Well, that's it for this episode of the Dribble Podcast. You can read more about this story in the West Australian newspaper and at thewest.com.au. Thanks so much to Scott and Suzanne Morrison for their bravery to come on and discuss this topic. We hope it helps a lot of people. Uh, remember faces. Remember to donate to Telethon. And if you're a Wildcats fan, never forget that your coach was going through a hell of a lot more off the court than you ever considered, but remained committed to the club and is a damn good coach. Hopefully this interview has helped take you behind the curtain and show you a different side to the man you only really saw in snippets of press conferences or on the sidelines when he was a bit of an angry ant at times late in the season. I think we can all admit to being angry ants at times as well. So Scott, Suzanne, good luck to you both. And I really hope that everything goes well for yourselves and Max from here. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, Craig, Craig, thanks for everything, man. No, we, we, we had a few headbutts, but I really appreciate your, your professionalism and your um, determination to get to the story. <laughs> this has been the Dribble Podcast. My name's Craig O'Donoghue. For all your basketball news, head to thewest.com.au and the West Australian newspaper.